dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. It's lonely at the top. How many times have we made that statement about our own situation as a leader or had other people's remind us about that truth? It almost makes us ask the question whether Jesus ever felt lonely. And it begs the question as to how he prepared his apostles for the solitude that would be a part of their life as a leader of the church. When we look back at how Christ prepared the apostles, he showed them what to do with loneliness. He taught them to transform it into the seedbed of communion. It's great to see you all again, and welcome back to our continuing series here where we're looking at how Christ formed his apostles for leadership. The idea is pretty simple, right? If Jesus is the king of kings, then he's also the best one to show us what we need to do as leaders in our world and what we need to do to prepare ourselves to lead the world in his name. I mean, it's a special kind of thing to be not only someone who is nailing it in terms of secular success, but nailing it for God in terms of eternal success. Can I bring the two together? Can I be successful in the world sense, but at the same time be successful in God's eyes? Well, of of course. I mean, that's the whole point. (laughs) Because on the one hand, if you're successful in God's eyes, but not successful in the world's eyes, well, I mean, that's fine. And, And we could be saving the world. God could have that special cross laid up for some of you. But that's not the reason why you're engaging. You don't engage the world in order to fail. You engage the world in order to be successful thereby and to transform this world uh, to make it something better. Because on the other hand, if you were successful in the world's eyes, but not successful in God's eyes, and you just got the payback that you get from working in the world, well, that also would be a failure. Because I mean, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his only soul? What we want to do as a Christian is we want to do both. We, we want to say, hey, I am leading in this world so that I can make an impact. And I want to make sure that the impact that I make is one that glorifies God, even while impacting the world and influencing it in, in, in a way that's well, tangible and measurable and, and impactful for the normal lives of people today. So to do both of those, that's the art of the Catholic leader. And that's why I'm doing this as a priest. Why, why is a priest talking to you about business? Because business is important <laughs> and your professions are important. And, and what you do in a secular way to the material world is important. You've been sent there by God, as a matter of fact, in order to try to make that effect. And if you don't believe that, then you need to get a new job. I mean, the, the foundation of everything is you believing in the value of what you're doing. And the value of what you're doing is just to make money. Well, then you're not really approaching it like a Christian. A Christian says, yes, I'm glad to make money, glad to make profit from what I'm doing. But at the same time, what I'm doing has value in and of itself. And I'm giving and deploying my energies to, to make sure that I do it well. 
that I apply my virtues to this, that I live it in character, that I, I, I make other people's lives better from my suppliers to my colleagues, to my customers, to, to my staff, whatever it might be. I make sure that I'm radiating the influence of Jesus throughout the process, right? But that's, that's a trick. And a lot of people don't even get that far. We live divided lives, unfortunately, and we push the two to the side where we act like our faith life is something that we do on Sundays, but then the rest of our life is what we do on Mondays through Saturdays, really. And that's if we're even lucky. And little by little, it's, it's obvious what happens. If you don't make faith a priority, well, then everything else in your life will become the priority. And before you know it, faith, it's almost like squeezed out of the room of our lives. And we don't make time for God. We don't make time for prayer. And little by little, we say we don't even see the value in it. How many of us know in our own families and amongst our friends, people who have literally stopped practicing their faith, and it doesn't necessarily happen all of a sudden, usually happens gradually. Our Lord even speaks about this in the parable of the sower and the seed, where he says some seed fell upon the, the ground and immediately took root. But then the cares and anxieties of life took over. And how many of us know that, right? Like we allow the other soccer practice and then there's grandpa that's sick. And then there's, and little by little, we, we, we treat, we approach the world from a vantage point that isn't directly that of the faith. We approach the world from a worldly point of view. And therefore you say, well, I don't even understand really what that's all about. What we have to do here is adopt a different style. And I want to say, no, what you have to do here is precisely bring your faith into your work. Bring your faith into your practicality. Bring your faith into your life because that's where faith makes the biggest impact. That's where the radiance of God is seen and felt. It's just for so many people, though, they, they, they divide the two and they say, you know, that faith has its center and, and the world has its center. And I'm saying that's the first step to end up losing your faith because you didn't make it part of the urgencies that we face every single day. The Christian, in fact, unites the two and says, I'm going to take what I need to do every day and I'm going to accomplish it from the point of view of faith with the help of God and with his grace. And that means that I need to bring all of my cares and worries and concerns and stressors, right? And all of those anxieties that are a constant part of my life, I need to bring those into my faith life so that God can, they, God can speak to them and God can speak to them through me, right? So I don't leave my faith behind. I bring it. It's the reason why I engage every day. And that means that that's why you're here at this workshop, so that we can together deepen our understanding of what Jesus is concretely going to do to change your life. If I hear another person come to me and say, I don't know why I should be Christian. I don't know why I should believe in God. So many people say that all the time. And I'd like to say your faith is as vital, as relative, and as important as you are. The fact is, when the faith, what it changes is it changes you, first of all. If your life is impactful and important, then you need faith so that your impact and the influence that you bear in our world is the right one. This, and so if it's not rooted in God, what is it rooted in? Well, whose influence are you making in the world? 
Who are you following? All of us are following someone. The Christian is the wisest of all because the Christian is the one who says, the one I'm following is God and the influence that I'm making is to be made through him. And therefore, I mean, we're not the first ones to do this. The apostles, for example, were taught by God to carry the weight of the burden of making the church's message effective in the real world. And they had to work while they were preaching. And they had to deal with all of the conflicts of politics and and corrupt judges and jail time and being beaten and crowds and, and then the intrigues of the local church and all of the different politics there. They had to be excellent leaders of human beings who were real in the world. How did they become those great leaders? I mean, they weren't born that way. They had to be taught by the Lord himself how to lead the world that he was saving. And I want to look into that because one of the most beautiful lessons that I see there is the solitude of the leader that's transformed by Jesus into the source of communion. This is really powerful and important for each one of you because we can't get over the fact that we're solitary in our leadership. I mean, it's lonely at the top is, is a truth that's perennial for all time. But what do I do with that? How do I embrace that loneliness and that solitude and turn it from a negative into a positive? Well, this is where the Christian wisdom shines really beautifully because it's what Jesus did with his apostles. And I want to look with you uh, into that and peer into that wisdom so that we can live that out better where we are in our professional lives. Are you a young adult between the ages of 23 and 35 and wondering what God is calling you to do next? Do you have a desire or vision that you just can't seem to complete? Then come to the Rise Above Retreat, March 19th through March 25th at the St. John Institute in Denver, Colorado. For more information, visit www.daregreatthings.org slash riseabove. You know, leadership comes in various forms. Uh, you got moms are leaders, dads are leaders, husbands are leaders. Uh, we're leaders in the workplace. We're leaders in the professional world as entrepreneurs. We're leaders in our culture when we take a stance for things. Uh, leadership is not just the stereotypes that a lot of us have in our minds of some sort of military general, right? Or some sort of you know, football coach. Leadership is, is found everywhere. Wherever you exert an influence for which you are voluntarily responsible, you are leading that environment that you're influencing. So some of the best leaders are great followers. If you really want to be a great leader, learn to follow effectively. What all these examples have in common is that leadership comes when you accept to be responsible for the effect of your actions. And with that responsibility comes solitude. Most people would prefer to try to pass the buck constantly, right? Saying it's not about me, I'm not the only one, it was this person's fault, this person's fault. It's, it's really hard for us to stop and say, you know what, I am the one who is accountable for this action. I mean, when we think about our management structures, for example, in our organizations, isn't accountability kind of a key goal where you want to be able to say, you guys need to produce this by this date and you are the ones responsible for this action. 
And it always amazes me, you know, to see people really don't want to be in that position. <laughs> it's so much easier to belong to a committee or a group or have a whole bunch of people involved instead of for someone to stand up and to say, I will make sure it's done or else I will be held accountable for it. It's, and yet when you find that person who says, no, this is on me, you also recognize greatness because you see someone who's really stepping into leadership because they step into responsibility. And I think that that's really the key to understanding how our Lord wants to develop leaders. You know, we think about leadership oftentimes in terms of personalities that are outstanding or, or colorful, charismatic characters. And, and we don't think about it enough from the, from the real foundations of leadership, which is that leadership is about responsibility. And that person who accepts to be responsible for their actions is someone who is accepted to become a leader. When we see our Lord forming the apostles, that's where he puts his emphasis. He never once talks about their need to be great speakers. He never once talks about their need to woo crowds. But he does train them to be responsible for the proclamation of the kingdom. An example, he sends them out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Even though he's still on earth, why in the world would he ask them to do something that he could do himself? except that we see there in the genius of our Lord and how God constantly works. God loves to ask his creatures to do things that he could do himself, from procreating children to, to judging fairly, to forgiving sins, to healing in all of its various ways, to teaching other people, right? All, all these things that God, God alone could do, but God chooses to do through us. Why would he do that? Except that he wants us to know the joy of being an effect of something so wondrous in another person. He wants us to be like him, to be causes of the changes, the influence, so to speak, for which he's ultimately responsible, to be an instrument in his hands. To do that, I've got to accept to be responsible. And that means to a certain degree, I've got to accept to be alone, that the buck stops with me. So obviously it's always with God because God's the one who gives that agency. God's the one that supports. It's his grace that accomplishes in us all that we can do. And yet there's also a cooperation where I allow that grace to move through me and I allow that effect to be rendered through me. And insofar as I cooperate, well, I share in a sense of responsibility. If I'm going to influence another person, I need to accept to be responsible some degree for that influence. And you see, that's where the whole subject gets interesting because if in fact I'm going to be responsible, well then the buck stops with me and I have, I enter into a real experience of solitude. And, and I think this is one of the reasons why so few people like leading uh, because it, it's scary to be a leader. It's scary to be the one whose name is on the bottom line. And, and when everyone looks to you as the one who's responsible for this, whatever it is, well, then you, you have to assume the, that the effect that you've rendered comes from you and is a reflection, therefore, of you. And there's just a risk that we take that if the effect, in fact, doesn't turn out well, well, then everyone will think that I'm bad. And so we'd rather not take that risk and stay with the majority of the people in mediocrity than to dare something great for fear that we might fall. And I understand that, but leadership it begins when we accept that responsibility. You could have the title of leader. You could have the a great management title in your company or whatever, but it could be utterly meaningless if in fact there's no character of ownership 
or responsibility underneath that. And so I'm not saying that you're not going to rise in the sense of the world, you know, but I am saying that you will not have the deep impact that God wants you to have without accepting responsibility for what you have to do and what's been given you to do. And when you do that, you'll accept solitude. And when I look at the life of our Lord, I see someone who has embraced solitude as what allows him to then really form the Christian community, right? The, the, the solitude of the leadership, say, for example, St. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, right? There has to be the foundation stone, Peter's faith, Peter's leadership, Peter's personal putting himself at, at, at stake in order to say you are the son of God allows the entire Christian community to then be formed, right? So a leader is a blessing for the world because the leader allows the followers to then flourish behind them. But the leader to do that has to enter into the solitude of owning the, the, the field of his leadership and owning what we're doing. And that's something that's just really as a spot where I'm asking you to reflect. Isn't that where Christ is calling you to grow? One of the biggest reasons why so many Christians aren't alive in the secular workplace is because they haven't made their faith real inside of them. We've allowed a division that comes from saying, well, my work is on one hand and God is on the other. And God says, I want to be in your work. And to do that, I need to be in your heart. And taking God into your heart, it means becoming responsible in your actions and embracing the solitude of taking a stance. I now, because I know God, I now know my own name. And when I say my own name, no one else can say it for me. I've discovered my freedom in my solitude. Well, when you also do that, you suddenly become the source for other people of peace, security, and you're able to give them the space that they need to effectively grow in their own lives. And that's what leadership is all about. The community of the followers flows from the solitude of the leader. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www. Member and join for free today. So when we look at our Lord, the master of leadership training, really, because he's training the leaders of the church who are the leaders of the world, you know, the 12 apostles, we see a pattern in him. He's giving the apostles a lesson in embracing solitude and in order for them to then be validly uh, able to create community that flows from their stance, their leadership, right? So how do we see this? Well, we see number one, that our Lord's doing that himself. He teaches the apostles to live for God. If you look, for example, in, in the early chapters of Mark, when it describes our Lord's, the perfect day of our Lord's ministry, because you one whole day begins by healing in the morning, and then he heals during the day, and then the night comes, and early the next morning, he arises and goes off by himself to pray. In John chapter six, after he feeds the multitude and the whole multitude wants him to become a king, literally wants him to be the king of Israel, Jesus runs away, it says. He says, then he withdrew by himself in the mountains to pray. 
before he picks his, up his 12 apostles, it says that he spent the night in prayer. Of course, we're thinking of Gethsemane also, where he spends the night, of course, praying alone. And he asks his apostles to join him. They don't join him. He stays in solitude. And what is he teaching his apostles thereby? That God comes first. And when you put God first in your life and you serve him, that's, he becomes the end goal of everything that we're doing. In a very real way, Jesus is proclaiming to the apostles in the truth of his own solitude with God that everything that they're doing as apostles is for God. If Jesus would have, in other words, not done that primacy and always been with the people or always been, you know, trying to become a king or, you know, working this or working that or doing these different, people might think that the kingdom belonged to this world. But when he stands in front of Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate could say, oh, you, know, you know, what do you have to say for yourself? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he's, he's in, well, if your kingdom's not of this world, you know, according to Pilate, well, then what am I supposed to do with a king whose kingdom is not of this world? I am of this world. And Jesus says, you are from below, but I am from above. I come from an, another source and I'm going to another place. And when he says that to Pontius Pilate, he's, he's effectively saying, I'm in solitude. You don't have anything to do with me and, and, and I don't have anything to do with you in, in that, at that regard. You can't touch the truth that, that I'm living. Well, if that's going to be the case, then Pontius Pilate's going to crucify him and not going to care because he doesn't belong to this world or whatever. And Jesus accepts that. He teaches his apostles to enter into this sense of truth about a God who is bigger than this world. And therefore, he's able to build a community of believers, see, who live for a truth and of a God who is bigger and better and outside of the circumstances of this world. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have a consequence for this world or that we're not supposed to engage in this world. Of course it does. But we're supposed to engage in it like Christians because we're following a Jesus who is bigger and whose message is doesn't belong to the confines of our practical lives upon the earth. And then he teaches the apostles to do exactly the same. Like when, when, when he takes them, for example, from their fear of the Jews, when they're in the upper room, right, in the book of Acts, right after he dies, and, and, and he meets them in that upper room, breathes on them, tells them to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then it fortifies them in their faith over the 40 days of Easter, until they enter into the great novena of waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, they're suddenly liberated from their fear of this world. They enter into a solitude of identity. See, they, instead of saying, well, we need your approval, we need to make sure we're safe, they, they know who they are coming from God. And that solitude of their identity then allows them to boldly proclaim the truth of Jesus, and to lead the world. But before Jesus does all of that, he's already training them in that solitude. Uh, look at Matthew 16, where Jesus says to, to the apostles, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, you know. And then he puts them on the spot. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? Oh, now, I mean, <laughs> they must have been squirming, you know, because like, well, we're not quite sure, you know, and, and he's like, as the time is, is gone for ambiguity, you will be able to lead others when you know where you're going. And so I'm asking you, 
Where are you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, of course, says the right answer. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, you know, makes him the rock of the community. Because you have said this, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. It's really beautiful, right? Or look at the other example where you have the, the mother of John and James who tells Jesus, I want my one son at your right and one son at, my, at your left when you enter into your kingdom, right? And the other apostles become jealous because the mother of John and James had said this. And Jesus takes them aside and says, whoever will be greatest among you will be the one who serves the rest. The lowest or the least among you is the one who's going to be the greatest. Right? So why is he teaching them to not be jealous of others? Because he's teaching them to enter into solitude. Don't worry about who's at my right and who's at my left. The father alone knows that. It's not even for me to give who will be at my right and my left. He's, he's responding back to the mother of John and James. And he's saying, listen, lady, this is about God. And your children, including you, have to enter into the solitude of saying it's in the will of God for us that we have our trust and our peace. We're, we're following God and not I'm trying to jockey for positions. We need to accept, in other words, whatever God has for our lives. Maybe we're not gonna be the great roses of spirituality. Maybe we're just gonna be a little flower that gives pleasure to Jesus when he looks at the ground. It doesn't matter. What matters is for us to fulfill the will of God and to be the people that we are. And he's training his apostles in that same thinking. Don't try to be the number one. Try to be the servant and the least of them all. But be yourself. When you serve others and you put love first, well, then you, you gain identity. And with that identity comes solitude. And with that solitude comes responsibility. And all of that, of course, generates leadership. If I'm going to train you to stand in front of the kings of the earth, I need to train you to enter into a vision of yourself that comes not from the kings of the earth, but that comes from one greater than every king of the earth. That comes from God. And the stronger you are in your faith, the more vibrant you will be with respect to everything around you because you will have found a freedom that comes from God himself. And God wants you to have that freedom. I want you to take away from this course that the Lord loves you enough to want you to be the leader of this world and your world, wherever it is. And to do that, he's asking you to embrace the unique identity that he's given you, to embrace the power of your name inside of you. And you do this by accepting his vision for your life, his vision upon you, his gaze upon you. Christ will make you solitary so that you can become a source of communion. The more that we discover God, and his truth and put our life on it, the more that we're able to really work to bring together the people who are following us for genuine goodness. The more we know truth, the more we'll be able to serve the good. And that's what makes us such powerful leaders as Christians. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at communications at stjohninstitute.org. That's communications at stjohninstitute.org. And visit www.stjohninstitute.org and sign up for our newsletter to receive updates from Father Nathan.